All right, we all here? How's everybody? Uh, good morning, welcome to Convo. Everybody have a lovely Thanksgiving? Woo-hoo-hoo! Everybody glad to be back? Woo-hoo-hoo! Last week, all right. Uh, we have a, today, uh, my name is Skip Barnett. I uh, teach in the English department, and we have some uh, presentations today, some speeches from the academic voice classes. We have several sections. Um, for the most part, these are uh, personal stories. Uh, except uh, the one that I'm going to introduce, uh, the student uh, who was chosen from, from our class, uh, the International Student and Friends section. Uh, Matt Delsar from uh, Australia, uh, he taught us a cheer. Aussie, Aussie, Aussie! Oi, oi, oi! Alright, so, um, Matt is not telling a personal story because we didn't do those, we did something different. Uh, he's going to give an informative speech about the Great Barrier Reef. So, Matt Delsar, please. Um, yeah, as, as Skip said, I'm from Australia. I've, uh, I do a bit of scuba diving and I've dived on the reef. So, decided to do my presentation on this. So the reef is the world's largest reef and it's located on the northeastern coastline of Australia. It's one of the seven wonders of the world. It's home to thousands of different marine life. Uh, despite conservation efforts, the reef is degrading, sadly, and many species, species are becoming endangered and some are becoming extinct. Now, it's the most important coral system on the planet and it has an extensive impact on humanity. Now, firstly, I want to talk about the size and the beauty of this reef. Now, as you can see, the reef is quite large. It runs for 3,000 kilometres. That's 1,800 miles for you Americans. And uh, <laughs> the size, again, I don't think you guys are too familiar with hectares, but it's 35 million hectares, which is bigger than Italy. So you can see on the Europe map like how big it is. Uh, it's not the size that's so important, though. It's the content. It's home to over 1,500 different species of coral fish, 200 types of birds, and the largest collection of coral on the planet. Many are only found on the reef, such as a giant clam, which can live to over 150 years old. The reef is also home to large animals, such as the green sea turtle, the dugong, the humpback whale, and is one of the few breeding grounds of the humpback whale, which is sadly also nearing extinction. Each of these unique species, can be seen here, is very important for the healthiness of the ecosystem. So up the left you've got the giant clam, humpback whale, dugong, and that's just a nice picture of the coral. And I'll just point out, when you do dive, it doesn't look anywhere near that colourful, sadly. They flood it with light, so um, that's, yeah, that's just like a really nice picture. Um, so now I'm going to talk about how it slowly is degrading and it's degrading due to processes such as pollution, climate change and coral harvesting. Now I'm sure everyone here has heard a lot about pollution and climate change so I say I'm going to talk about coral harvesting. It's also known as coral mining, it's just the removal of coral for sale in international markets as limestone, marine ornaments and construction materials. Now it doesn't affect the single uh, Coral that's removed or affects the whole system because there's processes such as sand erosion and sedimentation. Basically, this is when the sand from the ocean bed is dispersed in the water and the sunlight, which is really important for coral reefs, can't get through to the coral so well. 
It suffocates the fish and the marine animals and consequently many die. Um, so again, yeah, it's really important that in a coral reef there's a lot of diversity and this degradation reduces it, sadly. So now I want to discuss further about how this reef is really important for the whole world and particularly the health of many humans. Now the reef, it acts as a protective barrier for the northeastern coastline of Australia. So on the map we saw how large it is and uh, I know we're obviously not in Australia but if the reef does go, there's going to be a lot of flooding at the northeastern coastline of Australia. You know, economically, you guys are, yeah, Australia has a little bit of an impact on the world. Maybe not a big one, but, you know, we help out. And um, sadly, there'll be like a lot of flooding and that sort of thing. And some researchers have stated there could be an increase in tsunamis around the top of Australia and the lower Asia region. Now, this impact, uh, sorry, this protective barrier is, um, aspect is highlighted. In the Maldives a few years ago, the reef, due to processes such as coral harvesting, was so degraded that the US had to come in and spend $10 million building a new wall to protect the coastline. Now, this protective barrier aspect is really important, but in my opinion, I think the most critical aspect of the reef as it contains many medical co uh, chemical compounds that can be used in medicine for research and, and treatment of diseases such as cardiovascular disease, ulcers, leukemia and skin cancer. Uh, the coral skeletal structure is also used in bone grafting, which again is another very important part of medicine. Uh, how, sorry, currently over half the drug research being done is being done on coral reefs. And as this is the world's biggest coral reef, um, it's obviously very important. So today I've talked about the magnificence of the reef and its importance for humanity. It's the world's largest reef with thousands of different organisms. Sadly, some of these are becoming endangered due to processes such as coral mining. That reef is very important as it acts as a protective barrier and there's many organisms that have these chemical compounds which we can use in medicines. Lastly, the reef is just a beautiful thing to visit and if you guys have the funds to visit Australia, I certainly recommend you do and take the time to explore the reef. Thank you very much. Good morning, I'm Dwayne Stosfus, a professor in the communication department and I'm gonna tell you just a little bit about the stories that were shared in the section of Academic Voice that I'm teaching this fall because it's a little different from what just followed. We started off with a, a personal essay and then the personal essay was shared in, in oral form and uh, in class. And the model for the, the story was the Moth Radio Hour which has a, a couple of qualifiers for the stories that are shared there. One, it needs to be a true story, and the storyteller should start in the middle of the action, and the storyteller should have a clear stake in the story that's being shared. At the end of the personal stories that were shared in class, I asked the students who should be the representative from class to share their story in convocation. And the, the clear favorite was Dalton Shetler, a broadcasting major in his first year. And as he tells his story, I think you'll soon see why 
the class wanted him to be here with you today to share it with all of you. Welcome, Dalton. I'm going to raise this up a little bit. Uh, so like you said, my name is Dalton Shetler. I'm going to be talking about uh, the journey of my childhood and my life. My mother and I came home to countless furniture items being destroyed. The cabinet doors in the fridge door were ripped apart, and there were holes in the wall. We were away at a football practice before we had seen this disaster. The police were alerted, and they interviewed my mother while she cried. I was in the middle of all this feeling sick because I hadn't known what had happened. My father had been drinking again, and he destroyed our house with his bare hands. This wasn't the first incident, but it soon became the last. My journey dates back to January 6, 1995, where I was born in Fort Wayne, Indiana. My father was a Marine, and a few years after my birth, we moved to Oceanside, California, on another military base. A few years after living there, we moved to Maryland, where we lived for a few more years before we eventually found our home in Defiance, Ohio. It was here that the journey of my life truly began. In the Buckeye State, I learned many things that made me the person who I am. My father had became an alcoholic after his service in the military. He also domestically abused my mother and was wrapped into legal trouble, which was really ironic because he was a police officer. Many, many nights I would lay awake and I would hear the horrifying screams across the room from my mother, knowing at the same time I couldn't do anything to protect her. I remember laying in my bed with a blanket covering my face, mumbling out a prayer. I'd say, please God, take us away and keep us safe. All I want is for us to be safe. I would continue to repeat this prayer throughout the night. I also used to pray that I'd be able to grow and be able to protect my mother one day. I had a passion as a child. This passion was sports. I have always loved sports. Uh, this is what really helped to keep me going through my childhood. It was the outlet from the crazy world we were living in. It was the ultimate stress reliever. It was a source of happiness I could reach. I used to play in all the youth leagues. I was constantly organizing pickup games in the neighborhood. My favorite sport at the time was football. And I remember I'd go in the backyard, pick up a ball, practice taking a three-step drop and firing it over at a tree. Eventually, after all these days of football playing and sports, that major incident had happened. This is when my parents divorced and my mother went to, try, or went to court, and after a few trials, she won custody of me. That's when we moved to Hicksville, Ohio, to continue our life. I began attending Butler Elementary, where I started representing uh, Eastside Athletics. I was still playing football, basketball, and baseball all in junior high, but I wasn't very athletic, so I realized I had to pick one sport if I was going to be good at any of the sports and really focus on it. Uh, my favorite sport at the time was football, and my best sport was baseball. I chose basketball for reasons I still don't know. <laughs> I think it was God's plan. And it really worked out, because basketball is a sport 
that you can practice by yourself, whereas other sports can't really offer that. And so I began playing basketball. I remember I'd go in the backyard. I was looking up basketball workouts from online, and I'd go pursue them in the backyard. I would play Michael Jordan and LeBron James one-on-one -on -one every day in my imagination because I envisioned success like them. When junior high began, my mother started dating another man. This man became my basketball coach in junior high. He almost cut me my seventh grade year. Like I said, I wasn't very good. It took a lot of hard work. I wasn't playing my seventh grade year at all. Finally, my eighth grade year came. I got to see the court a little bit. It wasn't much, but it was a, it was a progression. Uh, finally, getting into my sophomore year of high school, I was able to dress varsity. I had progressed past my teammates during the off season that much. And so, uh, I got that chance to dress after I won the JV championship by guarding the other team's best player who averaged 15 points per game throughout the season but only scored two that game. Eventually, we made it over to my junior year where we had a different coach who didn't believe in my ability. This was very frustrating for me at the time because uh, it was my best season probably ever of basketball. I was shooting 60% from three-point range at the time, and I still wasn't able to dress. He finally put me in the last game of the year in sectionals, and I was able to play a little bit then. Uh, finally, my senior year came along, and we had a new coach come in who saw my work ethic and potential. This led to my starting spot on varsity. Eventually, I became the leader of the team, and I also made a game-winning shot that year to give us the first win of the season. We had many great moments throughout the year that was able to give me enough opportunity and recognition to play here at Goshen College. I take a lot of pride in being the person who I am. I promised that I'd be a person that kids could look up to. I wanted to be a great role model for them. I also promised that I would never harm a woman the way my father had. I promised that I'd be a person that people could come to for support and help. And I still do all these things today. Back in our own community, I still try to help out with kids and people who are having problems. I try to be a great source for people to come to, a great friend. And so in the end, uh, my journey has taught me the evil of the world in a very difficult time to understand it. But it has made me the person who I am. I couldn't be happier. Thanks. Thanks, Dalton. My name is Jessica Baldanzi. I teach in the English department. And I'm going to keep it short so that everybody has enough time today. But I'm going to have three students talking today, um, one from one section and two from my second section of Academic Voice. First is Jonah Park, and then Isaiah Friesen, and then Ezra Heisey. And they are also following the model that Duane talked about with the Moth Radio Hour personal stories. Although I don't know that you're necessarily starting in the middle of the action. We didn't do that part. So please welcome Dona Park first.
Hi, um, my name is Dona Park, and I'm going to share a personal story about my great aunt. Weeks before I left for college, I went down to my basement and I discovered an old family photograph. And inside the photograph were my uncles with jovial expressions, my aunts frozen in mid-cackle, and my grandmother sitting down and smiling. My parents were in the center, and they were holding two infants, which I later recognized was my sister and me. As I peered in closely, I noticed that my great aunt, who was in the far left corner, was smiling. A phrase that my parents often told me rang across my head. They used to tell me that I reminded them of my great aunt. But hold up, it didn't really hold positive connotations. Did it mean I was senile, old, and nasty? <laughs> it was like being compared to an old lady who had 100 cats and shouted at children for no apparent reason. So a little introduction to my great aunt. We used to call her Komo, which means auntie in Korean. And she lived with my grandmother, who in comparison was very hospitable. In comparison to my great aunt, my grandmother would open her arms up to any stranger living by the residence, even though there was also two other families living with her and that her husband had Parkinson's. My great aunt, she would sit around in the living room with the fan sputtering in her face while my grandmother broke her back serving others. My great aunt, Como, she hated loud and noisy children and would retreat into her sanctuary, her bedroom, that was sealed off with a black door. All of my uncles feared knocking on that black door, and my aunts feared treading upon her path for fear of harsh criticism. These negative memories started to loom over my thought, and before they took over my mind, I started to think of all the positive experiences I had with my great aunt. Fortunately for me, I had the privilege of getting to know the great aunt that most people didn't get to know. For instance, in the summertime, my sister and me, we would have mosquito bites riddled up all across our arms, and Como would be by our sides with a bottle of Windex. It was her strange concoction of healing our mosquito bites. And much to the disapproval of my mother, she would spray Windex across our arms. It was her strange but unique way of showing care and concern to my sister and me. Another, another time that my great aunt expressed this strange love and concern was when my aunt came into my great aunt's room visibly upset at what someone had told her. Someone had insulted her. My great aunt would also be by her side with an array of insults, calling um, my aunt's oppressor an idiot or stupid. And though it was offensive, yes, it did the trick to light up my aunt's face. <laughs> Five years ago, my great aunt Como was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and it was so heartbreaking to see someone who shared so many memories with you fade away very quickly. She didn't recognize who I was, she didn't know who my parents were, and she didn't realize who my grandmother was, even though she lived with her for 
over 30 years. But even during this hard time, a lot of people had the opportunity to get to know the great aunt that I had gotten to know. And now, looking back at the photograph and seeing my great aunt smiling, I began to miss her very, very much. Then I started to think of all the ways that I reminded other people of my great aunt. Maybe it was the way I smiled, maybe it was the way I was brutally honest, or maybe it was that strange way of how I showed care and concern to other people. And in that case, I'm glad to remind others of my great aunt, Komo. Thank you. Good morning. This is a story from uh, shortly before I arrived at Goshen College this fall. Um, yeah, so. One of my favorite movies of all time is Forrest Gump with Tom Hanks. And there's a scene in the movie where Forrest Gump goes running across the country, specifically along the west coast, um, where it's really pretty and there's sweet bridges. And it inspired me once I started distance running to uh, run across the Golden Gate Bridge sometime, even though I don't think that's actually any of the bridges in the movie. It's something I wanted to do. So I didn't know when I would get to do this, but when I found out that I'd be going on vacation on the West Coast with my parents this summer, I was like, that's what I gotta do on this trip. As long as I get across the bridge on foot and back, my trip's complete. So I got to do that. I was hanging out in San Francisco with my parents for the day. We had just finished up at Girardelli Square getting some chocolate, and I was super excited had my plan all in place, changed into my running clothes. My parents were going to go hang out on Fisherman's Wharf while I ran across the bridge and back. I estimated, just from a map, I didn't actually know, I hadn't really done any research, if there was even a path across the bridge, but I was like, eh, eight miles, an hour of running, plus 15 minutes to stop and take pictures. I'll meet you guys back here in an hour and 15 minutes, just take my camera with me. Uh, I didn't have a phone with me, so... Uh, you know, hopefully nothing emergency happens. Uh, if I get lost, then maybe I can beg a phone off somebody, but that probably won't be a problem. It, it'll be fine. So I took off running along, and there's this nice path going along the bay. The bay's on the right over here, and there's this cool artwork, and the city of San Francisco on the left, and uh, friendly bikers going by, smiling at me as I ran. Um, and how, well, you can't really see very well, but you can kind of see the bridge sticking up there. Anyway, I continued on, finally came to the bridge and found out, oh, there's a handy path here with a fence to protect you from the traffic. And who knew, like, it's so nice to run across the bridge. And you can see up there, and there's these towering, beautiful red suspensions. And uh, everyone was looking at me like I was crazy because they were all dressed in... Uh, coats and pants and everything and I was running along like who's this shirtless guy uh, what's he doing it's 50 degrees and windy uh, actually beautiful weather for running but I don't know who they thought I was or where I was from probably not Nebraska um, <laughs> which is where I'm from so I I continued cruising along the bridge check my watch shoot I'm a little behind schedule well I'm not gonna let that ruin my once-in-a-lifetime experience so I continued on, got to the other side of the bridge, and it had actually taken me a lot longer than I expected. I was like, well, 
ah, whatever, I'll take a picture, turn around, go back. And as I continued back along the bridge, I was getting a little more nervous about how I was going to get a hold of my parents, because if they uh, didn't know where I was, if I was 15 minutes late, who knows where they might look for me or what they'd try to do. Um, oh, there's a picture of me with the bridge, um, by the way. But I was like, Who, whose phone am I going to borrow? Uh, I should really try and get a hold of my parents, but I don't want to creep out some lady because there's this guy in his 20s who can't find his parents and needs to borrow a phone. Like, I'm not actually in my 20s, but a lot of people think that. So finally I came upon this guy walking along in his trench coat. He looked pretty pleasant and he had his iPhone out. So I didn't even have to make anybody dig their phone out. I was so happy. I was like, sir, can I borrow your phone, please? He's like, yeah, no problem. So I, uh, I took his phone and like, tried not to get any sweat on it as I <laughs> used it. Like, hey, mom and dad, I'm running about 15, 20 minutes behind schedule. So uh, yeah, sorry you didn't answer your phone, but... Hopefully I'll see you soon. So I was like, hopefully they get their voicemail. They miss it half the time. But um, I continued along, was enjoying it. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun. And uh, eventually I got back to Fisherman's Wharf, threw my shirt back on because there were dense crowds of people. And uh, I was like, I don't know how I'm going to find my parents. I think it's Pier 39, but Pier 39 is like this huge place and it's crowded. And uh, finally, I heard someone yell, my name, Zay. I was like, yeah, they're right over there. Whew. Found them. And I said, did you get my voicemail? And they're like, no, but it's no problem. So I was like, yes. I made it across the bridge and back safe, got my pictures, had my once-in-a-lifetime experience. So don't ever let being behind schedule ruin your fun. That's the moral of the story. Thanks for listening. I'm Ezra Heise, as you heard. I'm going to be telling a story about myself, actually. When you look at me, I'm tall, I have broad shoulders, I have a low voice and a beard. Your first reaction may not be, he must be gay. But at 16, I was about this tall, I was about this wide, and my voice cracked a lot more often. And I was on a journey to self-discovery. Every night, I would sit at my computer desk on chat sites, talking to people all over the world, chatting, flirting, I suppose every once in a while being hit on. I was watching videos that no one my age should have been watching, and I would stay up till about 2 a.m., and I'd done this for about two years. By the time I went to bed at 2 a.m., I would sit there and I would say a prayer to make God take these feelings away. After years of doing this, I eventually decided that it wasn't going to go away, that it was time to own up to it, that this was a part of who I was. So it led me to the place where I wrote this speech. A computer screen, a keyboard, <laughs> words on my heart, terrified, even horrified, and nothing to do but start writing. I wrote a letter to my parents, and I started out to those with freak-out tendencies, don't freak out. <laughs> Which I realize now probably scared them worst of all. <laughs> I continued on telling them that it wasn't their fault, that I was glad that they had raised me in a household where it was okay for me to discover my true identity and to be at peace with that. I think my mom started crying when I said gay. 
which I expected, no big surprise there. My mom told me that she was concerned for the way people would handle me, which is a genuine concern for a mother. I forgot to mention, I'm the son of a Mennonite pastor, so not exactly the most comfortable person to be telling your deepest, darkest secret to, but that's okay. We were on the way home from what my mother had deemed family night at Essen House in Middlebury. If you've been there, you understand it's some good time. <laughs> I don't think I cleaned my plate. So we're in the minivan and I'm reading this letter to my parents. My mom had said that responded in that way as she was, of course, sobbing. My dad asked me a lot of questions. How was I sure? Which I didn't go into too many details. He, and uh, <clears throat> we had to stop on the way home because my mom wanted to buy candles. I'm not sure why I remember this. So my dad ran in and that's when mom started asking the really tough questions. Do you really want to get AIDS? No, mom, not all gay people have AIDS. Don't you want to have kids? Yes, mom, I want to have kids. Which is a genuine concern for someone who wants to be a grandma more than anything in the world. <laughs> Luckily, dad got back fast, so the drive home seemed to fly by. I'd done it. It was over. So the next morning, I woke to two of the most love-filled letters I've ever received. My mother wrote me a letter, probably three to five pages long, saying that she'll never be at peace with it, but that I will always be her baby. My dad wrote me a letter in similar length, maybe a little longer, saying that he believed that there was a continuum, a spectrum, between completely gay and completely straight, and that everyone fell somewhere in between and not many people were on either end. This meant that my dad, the Mennonite pastor, was saying that it was okay, that he was at peace with who I was. Definitely put my heart at ease. So at that point in my life, I thought it was done, that I no longer had to come out. I mean, it was over. My parents knew, so it was good. Little did I know that I still had to tell my friends. I still had to tell my extended family. I had to tell my college. And... <laughs> Even my coworkers, little interactions with coworkers, like, hey, did you see that girl? And I'd slip up and be like, no, but did you see your brother? Oh. <laughs> that always opened up a pretty big conversation. But at 16, I'd already made a decision that I stick to today, that I would love from the center of who I am. And I don't see that stopping anytime soon. Thank you so much, all of you. That was a nice way to ease back in from Thanksgiving break. And you all are dismissed. <laughs>